In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it is wonderful to be back here at St. Augustine's. It's uh, always a pleasure. It's a, it's a breath of fresh air to see y'all. Uh, it's, it's just great. So I was honored to be uh, here. My wife and I are very proud to be here and be back with y'all. Uh, she was like, we get to buy pumpkins, right? I said, yes, yes, we get to buy pumpkins. So we will be visiting the pumpkin patch afterwards. Well, the debate stage is set. The crowds have begun filling into the space, all having to show these correct credentials for entry. The debate is set up in a circular pattern with the majority of people that enter either turning left or right. Little by little, the right and the left sides of the room begin filling up with like-minded people. Some of them are friends, colleagues, coworkers. Some of them are complete strangers. And while the two wings of the room are being filled up, another group appears, a group in the center. They are looking left and right, but they haven't taken a position yet. They're still undecided on what is going to be debated. And maybe by the end of the debate, the day, they'll find their place, either on the left or the right. Well, over the past few days, news about the newest debate has spread throughout the city. There's a buzz everywhere. The debates have become an odd form of entertainment. Most in attendance that day have already made up their mind of who they're going to pick and support. They've only shown up because they want to say that they were there when all of that drama went down. The pageantry of the debate begins. The opposing sides have gathered in front of the crowds, and a hush has fallen over the audience. They smile. They exchange pleasantries. All the while, you can see their brains working for the moment they can flex their power and show the weaknesses of the other side to the people. This tension is in the air. Everybody knows this is going to be good. The crowd of the debate is larger than usual today. A quick look at the line of topics explains why this is. See, usually this area that they would be having these debates in is usually only uh, focused on things that apply to the 1%, the very wealthy. But today's debate affects everyone there in the city. This is something that has to do with the economy. So everyone shifts very anxiously as the meeting is called to order. And to many of us, we can probably imagine what this debate looks like. This sounds a lot like what our country has been going through over the past couple of weeks. But what if I was to tell you that this debate that I'm explaining isn't taking place in 2020? The scene doesn't include two-party candidates whose names you have seen adorning the yard signs around town. These are not the same people that you've heard their voiceovers over the radio and over television. There's no cameras. There's no moderators. There's no specific news channel with their specific commentators giving that very specific spin on all that's unfolding. No, this debate that I'm explaining doesn't take place in this country or on this continent or even during our lifetimes. Because the scene I'm describing is taking place in Jerusalem. It's what we just heard of in the first century. The two parties aren't Republican or Democrat. They're these Pharisees and these Herodians. And the topic about economy is not about stimulus checks or our uh, recession. It's about the tax that's been opposed uh, or has been posed upon them uh, and the Israelite people by the treasury of this very oppressive new regime, this Roman Empire. So for the Pharisees, the tax that this is up for debate 
is an affront to their Jewish faith. The coin that's required to pay this tax, it has this image of Caesar on it. It has an inscription below it that says Emperor Tiberius, the divine ruler. Everything that this coin represents is sacrilegious. It breaks the first, the second commandments of Moses. And more importantly, every time they use this coin, the people are reminded of the pagan gods that have been let back into Israel, this promised land of Abraham. And now on the other side of this debate is the Herodians. And as their name implies, these are the followers of Herod of Antipas, the son of Herod the Great. And he's the current ruler over the people of Galilee. The Herodians, they support this taxation of the Roman citizens. They live in the belief that the Roman Empire is the light of the world, that the Roman Empire was a gift to the people of Judea, that they are now going to be freed from this very oppressive lifestyle that they lived under their own rulers. They promise peace and security. They are telling them that you must support the Roman Empire because all of you who are undecided need to be freed from your ignorance. And as the debate begins, all of a sudden the third candidate shows up, and this is Jesus. And the once opposed and malicious sides of the Pharisees and the Herodians, they now turn their focus on the weakest party they believe. They have heard about his teachings in Judea. They've heard about his followers. They've heard about all the people uh, that he has gathered together. And they think they see weakness. And so they decide to join forces just for a moment to try to rid themselves once and for all from this other party, this prophet of Nazareth. So they begin their assault, much like a lot of our debates begin that we have seen. They start to butter up the other candidate. Teacher, they said, we know that you are sincere. We know that you teach the ways of God. You show no difference to anybody. You have no partiality for one person or the other. And that it's here, right here, that they drop this bait so tell us, what do you think about taxes? Do you think it's lawful to pay them to the emperor or not? The Pharisees and these Herodians have just posed a question to Jesus that has severe consequences, regardless of how he's going to answer this. This, my friends, is what has been popularly uh, been known as a gotcha question. There's no way out of it. If Jesus says yes, then he alienates all of his followers He'll be seen as a Roman sympathizer. He'll be seen as kind of crossing the line and letting go of everything that he's preached to the people. If he says no, then he'll be accused of sedition, of trying to incite the crowds to go against the Roman Empire, a very dangerous move. And at this point, the evangelist, Matthew, who we just read, gives this inquiry a little bit more oomph in a way. It explains that we hear this internal monologue in Jesus. Jesus is aware of what's happening. Jesus knows exactly what's going on. And I absolutely love this because when Jesus is saying that, oh, he knows the malice, as readers, we kind of lean in and go, oh, man, how is he going to get out of this? Like, what's he going to say? What's the answer? So as Jesus responds, he employs a tactic that would be very familiar to the people that followed him. He begins by using images, an image something tangible that he can hold up in front of them. And he does this. He does this to take the focus off of him and onto something different. So he takes this coin. He asks for it. He says, who has one of these coins? And he simply says, whose head is on this coin? 
And they all look and they say, well, that's Emperor Tiberius. Well, without handing the coin back, he holds it up even higher. And he says, well, then give back to the emperors what is the emperors. But then he closes his hand on this coin and says, but to God, give back to God what is God's. Jesus is making a, a distinction. He's saying, give back to the emperor the things that the emperor has created, the things that mankind has made, like this coin that was struck with the image of Tiberius. And to God, we must give back to what the divine has created, things like the human hands cannot make, things that are like us, ourselves, our bodies. We are God's because just as this man-made coin bears the mark of Tiberius, we as humans bear the mark of our creator. We bear the mark that was given to us in the book of Genesis. It's a stamp that's been embossed in the very fabric of who we are. Jesus' response to the taxes expands on the teachings that he's been giving the past couple of weeks. Two weeks ago, you heard this parable about the wicked tenants in this vineyard and how God would come and take the wicked tenants out and give the vineyard to the faithful. Last week, you heard the parable of this wedding banquet when all who are uh, invited and were ungrateful then are kicked out and the doors are open and anybody who feels like they have been forgotten are allowed to come in and celebrate. This Reading today, it's very, very important that we hear that this has been a continuation of Jesus' final message. See, Jesus knows that two days after he tells this, he'll die. He'll be crucified. He knows that he's not leaving the city of Jerusalem alive. He knows that this is the final lesson that he needs to give. He's been leading us up to these moments when he's trying to tell us one final thing. You must return to God. You must know that you are truly God, are truly God's property, and that everything else, like these coins, let moth and rust destroy. They are nothing. Throughout the history of man, we have continued to distract ourselves with the voices of different candidates, of different opinions of the world. We have forgotten how to strike an even balance between being citizens of this world and these governments and citizens of God's kingdom. We have allowed the loudest voices to dominate the narrative. We continually look around at this morally bankrupt world and we wonder, how have things gotten this bad? But not recognizing that we had a hand in its own creation. Instead of hearing the still voice of God calling us back to our maker, we just turn up the volume on our televisions. We turn up the volume on our radios. We listen to the words that are strategically written, strategically ordered in a way to make us think that we ourselves are thinking those things. We give undue power to undue things, allowing those things to take power over us, to change us. See, we are starved for the truth. We are starved for something that could break through this silence. Now, Jesus understands what it's like to be human, Jesus understands what it's like to live in a world when you are stuck in between the allegiance to Caesar and the allegiance to God. Jesus knows what it feels like to be pulled every day in these opposing directions. So maybe this is why upon Jesus' death, as he hangs on the cross, he asks for God to forgive us, for we do not know what we're even doing sometimes. That's why maybe our opening colic today, connecting to this reading, 
implores God to continue to show us mercy and that our church, all of God's people throughout the world may be able to show that mercy to one another, to show and to reveal our fallibility, our brokenness sometimes. Now, to be clear, and this is very important, that in seminary we had lots of debates about what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not saying that it's, uh, that it's not important to support the governments that you are living under. He says that that's important. That is something that is a part of your life. But Jesus, on the other hand, is saying that the governments you live under should not define who you are. We must not allow these allegiances to the state or political parties or political candidates to overwhelm our allegiance, our affiliation with this Jesus movement that God and Jesus are calling us into. The voice of Christ and the direction pulling us towards is a path that is very difficult to follow. When we follow it, the wills of man will challenge it, and it will try to steer us back to these ways of destruction. And yet, we ask for God's mercy. We ask for us and our rebellious hearts that God can pull us back to where we need to be. God will silence even the loudest voices. God has done it over and over. We read about it in Isaiah's passage today. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, these huge empires that no one could defeat, they all faded away. The only thing that was truly constant was God. Now, some of us here say, okay, that's all good and well, but what if we feel like we are doing the right thing? What if we feel like we do have an appropriate allegiance? Well, the reading from Paul today, he's writing to a community. Biblical scholars say the community in Thessalonica, this was Paul's favorite community. He lived there, he spent time there, and he grew there a lot. He has such a fondness for this community. Well, an event happens where he has to run away. And as he runs away, he anguishes over this idea that he's going to be cut off from this community that he feels is really centering him into where he needs to be in these allegiances. Well, word gets back to him that without, even without him, the community continues to thrive. So he's writing to them today saying, even though you are thriving and you're growing and you feel like you have this right allegiance, do not let yourself get too caught up in that egotistical mindset. Do not let your life be something that you think is so righteous that you have nothing to learn and to grow from. Do not let anything in your life stop you from continuing to, deep in, uh, to, to, to drill and to kind of dig deep into what God is calling you to do next. We're never outside of that, even in this greatest community that you can think of. So what does this all mean for us today in this world? Well, earlier I described this debate that was happening, and we had these two sides, this left side and this right side, and I uh, described a picture of these people standing in the middle that are kind of undecided of where they should go. Our world is filled with people like that, a people who are looking to the church, to us, to help them understand what's the right way to go. They've seen over and over, they've witnessed people telling them one thing and then doing a complete opposite. Words are bankrupt to them. They're so cheap. So what Jesus is calling us to do today is saying, stop adding to the noise. How are you living this gospel? How are you spending your days living into Christ's message? We can only do this if we realign 
our voices of our world with the voices of Christ. It's a commitment that we made. It's going to be hard, but it's something that we made in your baptism. It's a commitment that we make every time we take communion. When the bread and the wine are held up and we say, behold what you are, and you all respond with, may we become what we receive. The bread and the wine do not represent power and fame and wealth. That bread and that wine that we ask to become represent humbleness, servanthood, kindness, peace. They call us to stand in a community that welcomes all people so we can grow together. The world, as we know right now, is weighing options. The world today is far more interested in the gotcha questions because those are fun to watch. The world is filled with ways that we can feed our ego for self-preservation. But Christ is calling us to stand back and to look at the world itself and see where we can be change makers. How are we not adding to the divisive ways of the world? How are we walking back to the middle of the debate hall and showing our allegiances to Christ? How are we no longer uh, putting our hope in these ballots and putting our hopes in this journey that we walk along with God in? Christ calls us every day to dig into our pockets, to pull out the coins and the things that we think make us who we are. Christ tells us to hold them up and say, whose image is on that? These are human things. These are fallible things that can just be removed. This is important because when we remove those things, everybody, no matter who you are, can find once again that stamp of Christ on your heart. You can remove the noise and see that divine spark. Jesus loved to tell parables. Jesus wants to remind us that we are the pearl of great worth, that you're the mustard seed, that you are the light of the world. So I pray that we can be part of a solution, especially in the upcoming weeks. We can help others discover the divine spark inside of them. We can find ways to serve them. Our world needs faithful tenants, grateful wedding guests, and standard bearers of Christ. So may the Almighty and everlasting God, as our colic says, continue to persevere and preserve us in God's mercy so that we may be faithful stewards of our baptism and this divine image of God. Amen.